Welcome to Farcast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. We're so glad you're with us again this week. What a terrific week we had last week. And then, you know, it led us into a pretty dismal week for stocks. Uh, It was a big week. We had the Federal Reserve. We had all sorts of news out of firings and hirings and replacements in the White House. The chaos uh, did not prevail, though. Things seem to have calmed down over the weekend. Stocks had a very good day today. I think it's all a matter of getting Kenny Polcari back in the country. Uh, But we're so glad uh, that so many of you listen each week to the forecast. I want to tell you especially... uh, uh, that we had a great friend pass away last week. Dan Anderson passed away, longtime friend and client. One of those guys who was just always positive. Everything was always great. Things were going to be better tomorrow. Dan used to say, I understand your problem. I hope you learned something, but we can't catch yesterday's fish. Let's move on and think of something good to do. He was 90 years old, and we're going to miss him a lot. Okay, we've got a market that's recovered. I'm going to see if Kenny Polcari thinks that we indeed, we indeed did test that low that he'd been calling for us to test and if it held and what we're supposed to do from here. Remember that on the forecast, we believe that money is hard to make. We believe that old-fashioned research, hard work, discipline, and patience are the keys to successful investing. And finally, we believe that emotion is the foe of the long-term investor. If you're feeling ebullient, if you're feeling panicked and like you want to sell everything, don't go with your feelings. Go with your head. Go uh, uh, forget your gut and, and become dispassionate and dogged and disciplined, and you'll do all right. All right. Joining us now, of course, from New York... One of the uh, longest tenured members of the New York Stock Exchange, the handsome, the charming, the recently back from terrorizing Europe, the, uh, the fabulous uh, managing director from O'Neill Securities on the floor of the NYSE, my dear friend and much older friend, Kenny Polcari. Welcome back to the Farcast. Thank you, Michael. I love the way you introduced me. It's a pleasure to always be back on the forecast with you. Well, we've gotten lots of letters of complaints saying, where the hell is Polcari? Uh, And we've also, I got to tell you, we have had a couple of emails from Europe uh, about this uh, man with salt and pepper hair who likes to talk with his hands and tell people how to cook, you know? Um, I I just played dumb, said I didn't know who they were talking about, but I had my suspicions, Kenny. So tell us, how was the trip? The trip was great, actually. The trip was very enlightening. You know, I, I uh, visited with clients that I currently do business for in uh, in Germany, Scotland, and London, and then I and then I uh, I managed to meet a few new ones, or at least potentially new ones, and got some great insight to what's going on in Europe in terms of their view of the world, not only Europe, but their view of the U.S., what their view of what the investing climate feels like and looks like, um, how they access the global markets, how they continue, you know, what they think, how they think they're going to continue to access global markets as, you you know, the technology gets more and more uh, advanced and, and efficient. So it was a very enlightening trip. Uh, overall, I thought it was ended up being fairly positive, so that's good. So you're hopeful. I mean, you, you feel good about it. Well, listen, I feel good. I feel good certainly about the opportunities in Europe as a, you know, as a, as a, as a continent, as an investing continent. I think, listen, Europe, everywhere I went in Europe, whether it was Germany or Scotland and even London, you know, there's lots going on. There's lots of buzz and people moving around. And, you know, you talk to the locals and they feel good once again about their local economies. Um, and so that's, you know, some really kind of on the, 
on-the-ground intel that you're not going to get by necessarily reading the paper. You know, you want to talk to the average person and see how they feel and 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 what they how they how they feel about their economy and their own country and and their opportunities. And I got I walked away there feeling as I as kind of confirming what I thought was I think there's great opportunity in Europe in terms of. Uh, for the long-term investor. Right? Well, uh, we didn't do a very good job of holding down the fort while you were gone. Uh, tell us tell us what you saw when you were over there as stocks were pulling back. Did we reach that low uh, again? That's what we've been looking for. Uh, that's In what I was fact, telling we folks. we did. We hit we it, did, didn't we? And you reached that low on Friday while I was, uh, while yes, I was we did. You know, in midair over the Atlantic. You guys were uh, uh, testing that uh, 200-day moving average, which uh, was 28, uh, 2580, uh, 2586, and I think you tested as low on Friday at 2588. So you essentially did test it. You did not pierce it. Like in February, remember, we tested it. We pierced it ever so slightly, but slightly. bounced right back. On uh, Friday, like being we a came little right pregnant, we tested it and yeah, pierced right. it ever so slightly. On Friday, you came right down. You sat on it for a little bit, and uh, uh, you closed really at the lows there on Friday, which kind of set up and made you think that they were going to really jam it today, at least on Friday afternoon. Yeah, that, that we'd have a follow-through down day, right? I mean, markets well, don't you, bottom on Fridays. That's what we always knew on Wall Street. No, Maybe this one did. No, well, they don't bottom on Fridays, and they certainly don't bottom when they close on the lows, right? right. I mean, there's usually some more downside follow-through, but there was such positive news over the weekend in terms of trade policy and Stephen Mnuchin and making, you know, the the the. the uh, 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 the shows around town and bringing people up to date and, you know, trying to calm the markets down and say that, you know, we're quietly having these negotiations and China is coming to the table and everyone realizes that, you know, it, that, that we should maybe renegotiate. Now, not everyone's going to agree on everything, but the fact is that that's a different tone. Right, that whole conversation was very different from the from the knives they were throwing at each other over the last couple of weeks. Right, back and forth that made everybody panic to think there was going to be this global trade war and the world was coming to an end. And then over the weekend, they made it they made it sound. Even today's Wall Street Journal, you know, had a very positive uh, article about how you know we're working diligently behind the scenes to make this work, and everyone's coming to the table. So you could tell from the minute you got up this morning that the futures were rallying. Europe was up. Uh, Asian markets uh, closed a little bit higher, but they didn't get the full benefit that the rest of the markets did. They'll certainly benefit tonight for sure. I think, you know, we'll see those markets up significantly overnight. But, um, uh, and that's what it was. And you could okay, feel but, it the you know, moment you came in today, right? To be fair, yeah, you could actually when you can't. Yeah, and I was looking at futures, you know, very early in the morning as I always do. And I was like, geez, this is, looks like it's going to turn around. But, but to be fair, look, one of the things I, I look at, at, at how the market reacted last week, and I'm kind of trying to be self-critical and say, geez, you know, maybe we got it wrong. Maybe, maybe we overreacted and things weren't as bad. But to be fair, we had the president of the United States was telling us that trades war, trade wars weren't bad, that we would go, that they weren't hard to win. We'd start a trade war and you know beat up on everybody and get away. I mean. That didn't I happen. agree, and I think that was part of. But you see, I don't necessarily think that people agree with him, right? I mean, he could say what he wants, but I think you got plenty of economists and strategists and analysts out there that that might argue differently um, to say that that's not necessarily true, and you don't want to get yourself caught in a trade war. You know, he's you know he's full of bravado, you know, and he gets up there and he tries to say, it. and part of that maybe is good. Look, he was he was tough coming out of the coming out of the gate. He was very. Um, 
very specific. Uh, but then on Friday afternoon, late, you know, when he gave when he gave a complete exemption to the European Union and other allies, that then set the table. He was trying to drive home the message that look, I'm not trying to start this global trade war, and I'm happy to have conversations with people that come to the table and people that want to negotiate. But China has to come to the table, and I think, and I and I I, I do think he's right. I think most people will agree that China needs to come to the table. Well, there's a big um, difference, though, and so, I mean, I think the market said today there's a big difference between a trade war and a trade dispute. I mean, a trade war right. is really is that's no bueno in a serious no, way. No, no right? not at all. Right. So, at all. but a trade dispute we can, and it looks like okay. So maybe this is what we've got to start to figure out, Kenny. Maybe this president starts with this huge bombastic attack. You know, he drops right. the a bomb, and then he kind of backs off and he goes, "Well, I really didn't mean it." You know, I mean, well, uh, well, or he says, "I'm willing to negotiate if you re- if you come to the table in good faith." And I think that's what we've been seeing, right? Because he has backed off. He has all of a sudden now he's given all the allies, the European Union, and other allies a complete pass, right? He's given them all exemption because because they are coming to the table, they are having a conversation, they are willing to renegotiate and talk about you know what trade policy should look like going forward. Look, we're in a new millennium. A lot of these policies were written years ago, and you know the last couple of administrations haven't done anything to really to, to really change them. And I, you, I have to say one thing, you know, Trump Trump uh, campaigned hard. He campaigned on tax reform. He did it. He campaigned on financial reform. He did it. He campaigned now on 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 uh, a trade, and he's doing it. So like him or not, say what you want. The fact is, you hit the nail on the head. He may come out bombastic at first, but in the end, uh, I think people respond and come to the table, and then he gets things done. Well, look, the concessions you know, like it not, seems he's uh, getting out of China really are looking pretty good. And and we haven't gotten these concessions out of China before, and it really has been a problem, and we really should level that playing field. But I just don't know any reasonable person who would have gone about it this way. Well, and I agree with you, and I think that's what created all the angst and anxiety. But you know what? In the end, maybe that's the way – maybe that's now the only way you got to do it because everyone else has been unsuccessful in doing it. He now – Although as, as ugly as it felt or as, as crazy as you or bombastic as you think he is, the fact is it, it does produce some results. Now, listen, it's not over yet. You know, we haven't, we, we, you know, this, this trade discussions are still very much happening. But I think, or at least the message today was that the market believes that, uh, that you know, that we will get uh, some, some movement on trade. We will get some movement with the Chinese. They will start renegotiating and, and, and the, the policies. And so let's see. Now, look, this could have been the dead cat bounce, right? This could have once again been that rally yes, right yes, off the bottom yeah, where right. we tested the lows, and now they're going to rally it again. We're going to hit resistance at 2689 or 2690, where yeah. the 100-day moving average yeah. is. So that's up about 40 points from where we are right now. I would suspect if we got there tomorrow, which we could easily get there, that we're going to hit resistance. So do you think this so, – so give us your call now, Kenny. So we went down. You, you, you've called the first dip right in the beginning of the year, and then you've called the retail test correctly. What happens? Are we going to get through this? Does the, does the rally continue? Well, so I, so I have to, I, you have to I kind of heard you I breathing think, heavily there. That's, I like it when we get heavy breathing out of you. It's like you're really excited about this. 
listen, a lot, a lot's going to happen over the next couple of days when you talk about trade policy. So a lot's going to be driven by what happens. So I'd like to say, look, we're going to hit resistance at the 100-day, which is at 2690-ish, 2695-ish on the S&P. I would not be surprised to see this rally hit resistance there, back off a little bit, and then churn as we get more data out of, out of these conversations. Now, if they succeed, if it looks like we are really getting real negotiation, then the market will then the market will have tested, and that's it, then, it's, then it will move higher. Okay, if it looks so, like we're stalling again, then I think we test the lows again for the third time. Okay, so you and I have been doing this a long time. If we see it hit that resistance on the upside, it goes up another 300 points, it hits that resistance, and then it churns, that's kind yeah. of a healthy, that's a market behaving in a healthy manner, right? And that's absolutely behaving in a healthy manner. You actually want to see that. You don't want to see that dramatic V-shape move that we had after the, after the February fall. They don't last. They just don't right last. To the highs. Right? They just don't last. Yeah. Okay, I yeah, got you another. Don't, they I don't got, last. You don't want to see that. I, okay, so I got two more questions for you. So, first, okay, if we are all, because uh, odds are, now maybe, you know, uh, Farr and Polcari are the only two in the world who are figuring out that perhaps this is the president's approach to the world and you don't have to take him quite as seriously. But if the rest of the world is also figuring out that President Trump, Trump leads with a lot of bluster, does that, is that like, uh, the, you know, the, the kid calling Wolf? I mean, are people going to start taking him less seriously uh, in the future? And does this approach not, you know, kind of fade in terms of its efficacy? Well, you know, that's a very interesting, that's a very interesting question. You wow. Know, will, will from it far. How about like that? People, you sound so will surprised. It be all of a sudden people saying, you know, I, but here's what I think. I think he was fully prepared if China didn't come to the table, I didn't think he was he, he would back off. So I think he was fully prepared to have a trade war, right? So I all right. I mean, all right. So you're saying he's I, not bluffing yet? You haven't seen him bluff yet? I don't yet. think he's bluffing. Okay. I don't think he's bluffing. All right. Nope. Now I don't think he's bluffing. Uh, last thing, coming in, we're winding in it, coming around home, around the far stretch, and out in front is Paul Kari, who's going to tell us uh, <laughs> what we should be thinking about because we saw a tech rally, we saw the banks rally. Where should we yeah. be thinking about in terms of our investments going forward for listeners to the forecast? Well, listen, I still like, because we're still going to get those, you know, two more rate hikes this year. We're going to get two more next year. So I think you have to be in financials, right? Because financials will certainly benefit. I think you have to also, once again, take advantage of the opportunity, some of the destruction that took place in the broader tech. Look, a lot of the tech stuff has been dragged down by Facebook, and I don't think this Facebook story is over yet by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, he got caught with his pants down, and now he's trying to play, you know, a, a woe is me and may a cup and all that stuff. I think, I think there's much more there. And so I think you could see Facebook come under more pressure, and that will drag some of the, the, the other tech names down. But if you've got a strong tech portfolio and, you, and you're buying, you've got the right stocks in your portfolio, take advantage of the, some, of the, some of the damage that's been done to some of those other names. And I'm not talking about necessarily Google, but names like Amazon or na other names that have come under pressure as a result. Do you buy Facebook? I've got to go. Do you buy Facebook or no? I'm not a Facebook fan. Nope. You're not a Facebook fan at any price. Nope. Have you looked at the fundamentals? Facebook. I don't buy. Listen, I, if I don't like it, I don't use it. No matter what it is, I don't buy it because I don't buy things I don't like or use. And I just don't like Facebook. Why don't you like Facebook? You know what? I just never liked it. I didn't like the whole idea of of what it does, right? I mean, it gives everybody, everybody on Facebook stands up and everyone's life is wonderful and everybody's doing everything's great. Everyone's going on vacation. Everyone's you know, you didn't like the idea of slicing bread before they put it in the bag either. I mean, you know, it's not like you're really hep with all sorts I'm of innovation and Facebook new technology. I'm not a user. I'm just not.
All right. Well, we the, here here we're going to have to agree to disagree because I am a Facebook user. Uh, I've yeah. kept up with all of the kids that I taught in high school years yeah, okay. ago, and and I keep get to see pictures of their kids. These kids I knew when they were kids. Family okay. all over the country. I've got Farcast listeners who send me stuff. So there are like three or four thousand people who send me notes. And uh, I'm Michael K. Far or Uncle Money. Uh, you can well, just go to Uncle, Uncle Money on Money. Facebook, and that's like me. That. Do you like Uncle okay, Money? Well, let me ask a question. Then you're using it for business. You're not sharing a lot of your. Are you sharing a lot of personal information on Facebook? I've had. I trace our relationship back to childhood, Kenny. Uh, I have the pictures of us together when we were young children, when we were uh, in college, when we were when when when. When we were working the bar scene, you know, on the uh, Upper East Side. I, I, I got personal stuff on there. It's 20 times earnings, and earnings are growing at close to 25% a year. That doesn't look bad to me. I think you got to look at Facebook, too. Not that I ever make a recommendation. Hey, next week, I love you. Who loves you? I love you, and our listeners love you. Thank you so much to the great Kenny Polcari for joining us once again on the Farcast. Stay with us. We're going to be right back talking Washington and then the world. Stick with us on the Farcast. You're listening to Farcast. This portion of the Farcast is brought to you by Far Miller and Washington Investment Council. Investment Council means we work for you. Our advice is tailored to you and to your needs and to reach your investment goals. At Far Miller and Washington, we believe money is hard to make, and we're going to work hard to keep it working for you. You're listening to Farcast. Welcome back to the Farcast. I'm Michael Farr. Thank you so much for joining us each week, letting us into your earbuds, into your cars, along your walks and your runs and your treadmills. We really appreciate it. We hope that uh, we hope that it's entertaining, and we really hope that you learn something. Great segment with my friend Kenny Polcari. There uh, says that this market's going higher. Might uh, test some resistance coming up. And then we're going to see if it backs and fills. But we hit that low that Kenny had been calling for. So really important. Uh, now we're going to switch to Washington. What? The, that's fabulous music. Boris, what are we listening to today? Oh, I'm surprised you uh, are not familiar with that. Well, it a rang a bell. Yes. It is a cover of an old uh, American hit uh, from the Classics 4 called Stormy with a little <laughs> bit of a modern twist on it. <laughs> Stormy. With a modern twist. That's right. Stormy. Yes. That's, uh, it's very catchy. I, it, I, it is. The kids love to dance to In Moscow, today. they love to in dance Moscow, to it. In Moscow, St. Petersburg, Kamchatka, everywhere. It's a Kamchatka. They're, they're dancing in Kamchatka to Stormy. That's uh, right. That's, that's, that's just fabulous. Um, I just I don't even know where to go now. All right. Uh, now, uh, Washington and what's been going on in Washington for our segment, too. Gosh, you know, this uh, this administration and, and Capitol Hill, these people are the gift that just keep on giving. I mean, how do you even figure out where to draw the line and say we can't we we just don't have any more time to talk about all of these different topics? John Keogh is back with us, my great friend. Uh, he's the U.S. correspondent. For the Australian Financial Review, remember that he is, it's a top 10 newspaper in Australia. He uh, also is uh, a, an economist. Uh, he covers Washington. He covers Wall Street. He covers the uh, uh, Federal Reserve. Um, he's been here since 2013, gets up to New York regularly. Uh, so uh, he, he really is a, is a perfect person for us to be talking to about what's going on in Washington this week. Leffingwell, of course, is MIA. Uh, 
He's actually getting celebrated, feted, if you will. Uh, that's an F-E-T-E-D, feted. Uh, downtown tonight as he is being welcomed to a new lobbying firm. They make so much money. I should be there passing out business cards. Uh, and then uh, our political reporter, uh, Harry Jennings, is with us uh, this week, who's going to uh, top the headlines for us that John and I are going to talk about. John, welcome back to the Farcast. Good to be back, Michael. Yes, uh, you all ought to see John uh, in person. You know, uh, it's that accent. It's fabulous, isn't it? I mean, if I had that excellent accent in a bar, I mean, oh my goodness, be fabulous. Women love that accent. Uh, Harry Jennings does not have that accent. He has another accent of his own uh, uh, that um, I, you take it to bars, whether it uh, whether you can help it or not. Uh, yeah, yeah. That there's there's no leaving it behind. That's so. exactly right. Tell us what's going on in politics this week, Harry. Um, the uh, uh, of course the the Mueller update still uh, dominates dominates uh, Washington and is sucking a lot of the air out of uh, out of what everybody is uh, is talking about, uh, especially with uh, with Stormy being on uh, this uh, this time. There's a lot of uh, a lot of people that think this could be actually the the key to get uh, to to sort of bring down the uh, the Trump administration, which I don't think is what Mueller's actually after. But uh, Stormy uh, Stormy Daniels uh, uh, has basically thrown out her non-disclosure agreement and has sort of dared the the uh, the the Trump legal team to do anything about it. And uh, with uh, uh, where where that intersects with Mueller is. He's going to be paying very close attention to see if there is uh, if there is a deposition in the uh, uh, that that Trump tries to go after. And the Stormy. president lost another attorney this week too. Lost another attorney and another lead uh, attorney. Yeah, uh, John Dowd, who has uh, uh, carries a lot of water in this town. He's uh, he's gone, uh, and only Sekulov remains. Uh, Joe DeGeneva uh, and um, uh, Tensing were going to be coming in. But uh, they're not in because of a conflict of interest, uh, which no one quite seems to know what that means. Uh, but on Saturday, uh, the, the president changed course and right now only has the, the one attorney dealing with the special counsel. Obviously, he still has the White House. Attorney. And, John, what do you make of this mm. Mueller investigation and what's going on in the background? Hard to know where it's all going to head, but I was having um, a coffee with a Washington lawyer this afternoon who said one of his partners, a Republican, had been approached to try and come in on this probe. Uh, he'd resisted, didn't want to get involved, and I think that's the sense around town from quite a few lawyers that... Trump is a difficult client to work with, and a lot of them, it sounds by the sound of things, including this conversation, what we've read in other outlets as well in publications, that you don't necessarily want to be Donald Trump's lawyer because he doesn't always take your advice. Where's the broader uh, Mueller investigation heading? I've never really been convinced we're going to find direct evidence of Donald Trump colluding with the Russians. Maybe certain people around him were doing a little bit of underhand stuff. But uh, to Harry's point, I think maybe it's the um, if they get him under oath, um, the big worry is that Donald doesn't get his ducks in a line and doesn't necessarily completely tell the truth or he might trip himself up and, and commit basically um, a lie under oath. I think that's the bigger concern for him. And then there's the sort of, you know, how far is Mueller going to probe? Is he going to go back yeah. right through Trump's history on tax, on financial affairs that may even not be related to the election and Russia and dig up some stuff there and unearth some untidy stuff. I think he's probably going to be a bit smarter than that and 
keep within the bounds, the realms of anything related to the election. Maybe there is something from a decade ago that could give the Russians leverage potentially over the Trump organization. I think that's about as far as he might step, Muller. Chip Molster was on with us last week. Chip Molster is a Washington lawyer and a lawyer's lawyer, insider, big time. Uh, he said he would be, he was very careful. He said, I would be very careful. That was such a lawyerly answer. I was so disappointed. I would be very careful about putting the president on the stand. I said, would you do it or not do it? I would have to think about that a long time, he said. So uh, uh, one thing that uh, Chip Molster did not say is, hell yes, I'd put him on the stand. We didn't get there. I don't think anybody do that. And that's very, you know, also, John, what you said, I think, is a little bit telling because uh, this is Washington, D.C. We have more lawyers in the city of Washington, D.C. than mm. they have in the entire nation mm. of Japan. I mean, you can't swing a dead cat in Washington, D.C. without hitting at least three lawyers that a lawyer wouldn't take a job. Yeah. I mean, this is a big, high-profile job. Pays I mean, well. Pay should, should pay well, and Good you get profile. a lot of high profile. I yeah. mean, and you're not going to... Really? Okay, so that, that, that is... Uh, that, I think, is... That I think is telling. You know, the other thing I think about is he's had five of his sort of inner circle who have all cut deals. Now, you know, I run a company. If five of my senior hmm. guys, if I knew that five of my senior guys cut deals with the, you know, lead prosecutor investigating mm. something, trying to tie me to something, that they were singing like canaries, I, I might be a little concerned. I, I might have some trouble sleeping at night. Yeah, obviously there's concerns there, but I would point out that the, of the five or so people who have got in trouble with Mueller who have pleaded guilty or been charged, most of them have been in trouble for perjury or just lying under oath, not necessarily what they did in connection or, or, to the election. stealing or misappropriating yeah. funds. I mean, there's just been some remarkable stuff that people tried to get away with there. I mean, it's just, just okay. So let's move on. Uh, Harry, I want to keep, I want to get to Bolton here. What else is on your list as our political reporter today? Yeah, the, uh, the changes over in the uh, in the White House. Uh, Pompeo is uh, is coming in now. He is very much a hardliner, uh, and then another hardliner now. Uh, John Bolton coming in as the uh, uh, as uh, National Security Advi uh, National Security Council, and John Bolton is somebody who uh, has always. He, he's, he's never heard a proposal for a war that he didn't like. He's uh, advocated for well, that's first, his reputation. Yeah, right? he's, he's reputation. advocated for strikes have to be uh, both in uh, both in uh, in Iran and uh, and North Korea. Which now that he actually is is uh, not in an ambassador position, he was formerly ambassador to the United Nations, but now in the National Security Council, uh, will he moderate those views? Will he temper those views? Uh, the the hope certainly uh, hope certainly is uh, that he is, but he is he is no doubt very much a uh, a hawk and very much a separation from H R McMaster. So I, I think that the I think that the discussion I've been following you know uh, about uh, a number of the president's recent appointments, but particularly when we talk about uh, Bolton, is uh, you, you know is he is he really going to put U.S. the U.S. first, or is he going to further isolate the U.S.? Is he going to remove us? Are we going to be sequestered? Is the protectionism going to stop trade, uh, or is it going to enhance the U.S.'s position to trade in a, on a more level playing field? John? Yeah, he's more a unilateralist rather than a multilateralist, so he's a very... God, that sounds smart. Didn't that sound <laughs> smart, Boris? 
In other the, words, the, he's skeptical of working. Sounded in... too smart for me. Yes, did it? <laughs> yes, a little. It sounded bit. like Putin a little bit, didn't <laughs> it? A little, little. A multilateral. He's like... skeptical of working with other countries as a group to um, get outcomes that favour the US. He, he's very skeptical <laughs> of the United Nations. Uh, he, he sees a role for maybe the US as the superpower just to go it alone in some of these things. Having said that, he's, he's clearly, Bolton is going to need the support of, of countries like South Korea and China when he's dealing with North Korea. But, I mean, it's been an extraordinary couple of weeks. If you think about this, um, look, the trade and market sell-off in the last week or so has dominated the news coverage. But in about the last two weeks... Trump has lost his Secretary of State, his Chief Economic Advisor, so Rex Tillerson, Gary Cohn, and he's lost his National Security Advisor, H.R. Right. McMaster. I mean, and that is that is pretty three extraordinarily powerful, these are, these important are, these people. These are serious positions, yeah. Uh, and so it's, it's amazing that the market has... I mean, oil went up a little bit on Bolton's appointment, but only a couple of dollars. It's amazing the market has more or less taken that in its stride. And I think the reaction's more been to trade rather than the personnel changes. Yeah, I think the other important thing you said, which I think, John, was a point you made last time you were on the forecast, which was when we were talking about the agreement in Iran that uh, really the president wants to get us out of, that he, that he, mm. that it, he doesn't like multi-party agreements. He wants no. to be able to have one other counterparty mm. where he can really hold feet to the fire. But, but, but having to deal with and build consensus among a group in order to enforce something, he doesn't seem, he doesn't seem to really uh, think that that's the right approach for us. No, well, when he was a businessman in real estate, he was used to dealing with one counterparty typically in a business deal um, international affairs is a lot different like that you've got multiple stakeholders across different countries they've got domestic domestic political audiences these other yep. politicians and this is a good point someone made to me today on trade uh, in business deals you can be as big and brutal and nasty as you like there's just one other person you're dealing with and it's it's game on all's fair in love and war in geo domestic uh, geo international politics say you're dealing with with Mexico on a trade deal, for example, or, or another country, uh, the president of Mexico has a domestic political constituency, so he can't bend as far as what Trump may want him to on a NAFTA deal or something like that. In fact, Mexico's got an election in July, so he's not going to want to be seen to being weak to Trump. So it's a much more complicated world where you're dealing with multiple parties with multiple agendas. Well, look, we're running over. I'm going to come back for segment three. We're going to keep John Keogh, uh, uh here uh, we're just going to lock the door. I know he's got to go, but we're going to lock the door. He's too good. I'm learning too much. He's too smart. Um, uh, Harry, uh, please stay with us because I, I want to cover Capitol Hill, but we've got to get into the economics of what's going on, what happened with the Federal Reserve, what happened with this rate increase, and, and we just got so much information to share with you at the Farcast. Please stay with us in Washington, D.C. I'm Michael Farr. You're listening to Farcast. This portion of the Farcast is brought to you by Farr, Miller & Washington Investment Council. Investment Council means we work for you. Our advice is tailored to you and to your needs and to reach your investment goals. At Farr, Miller & Washington, we believe money is hard to make. and We're going to work hard to keep it working for you. Now more with Michael Farr and the Farcast. Welcome back to the Farcast, and we've got the fabulous music playing from, from Forrest. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. You know, and I got to see some folks over the weekend who stopped and said, 
We've been listening to the forecast and we're learning a lot and we're telling friends about it. We hope you will too. We hope you'll share us on your social media. Tell a friend, get them into the forecast. Send us a note. Tell us what you'd like to hear us talking about. We're getting them and we're trying to, and it's why we've got John Keogh back. We had so many of you tell us that you love John on the forecast. I think it was mostly our female listening audience who loved his <laughs> accent. But, don't you tell know, my wife. Don't, don't. She know, she, I think she called, actually. <laughs> oh, it was, good. she called. Boris, what a fabulous song. What are we listening to here? Oh, this is an oldie, but uh, how do you say in your country, but a goodie. This uh, was Good written in late 30s, 1938, really? by, by Leon Trotsky. It's called Trotsky. I, yes, before unfortunate incident with axe to head. <laughs> this is called I left my heart in Severnaya. <laughs> I, left, I left my heart in Severnaya. Uh, have I you le- ever been to Severnaya? Do you know? Actually, I have not uh, been to Severnaya. I mean, I'm probably one of the few who has not. Um, we, nor- had a, we had a summer home there, which is tough because it's ten below zero there every year. Every well, day. but it was a good place to get out of the heat. The swelter <laughs> yes, of, yes, yes. of Siberia. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, welcome back to the forecast. And remember to stay tuned for Boris's all-time hits from KTEL on the forecast. It's going to be coming out. I think it's going to be the Christmas present, uh, holiday present for the 2018 season. I'm looking uh, forward to the 8-track. The 8-track, uh, Harry, would be. Uh, you, do you still have an 8-track? I, I'm sure I'll, I will find one for, the, for Boris's greatest hits on KTEL. Oh, God. All right. Uh, so I, I have uh, uh, John Keogh still with us. Great segment, John. Thank you so much. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, economics now. But before we get to economics, because we have a lot to talk about with what the Federal Reserve did, with some of the numbers that we've seen, and what's happening with economics around the globe. Really important because there are opportunities in other global markets, and we're going to tell you about them on the forecast. But first, Capitol Hill, we missed it. So tell us, Capitol Hill. Capitol Hill, uh, 1,233 pages of budget finally got passed. 1,223 pages of, uh, of budget uh, finally got passed. Uh, Did you read them all? And, uh, every, every one of them. Um, perfect. Yeah. Uh, the, that uh, makes one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Halfway through the uh, the fiscal year, that uh, that finally got done. Spoke with uh, Matt Leffingwell last week as he was walking into the Speaker's office, and uh, they were approaching the deadline, and I said, eh, Matt, this isn't going to happen, is it? And he he said, "Yes, it will. We're we're in the fu- we're in the home stretch." And sure enough, it uh, it got uh, it got passed. So uh, a, a a very nice bill came uh, onto uh, a onto huge spending bill. A, a huge, huge spending, spending bill. bill. John, what did you think about that bill? Well, it's a pretty interesting time to be doing it this late in the economic cycle when unemployment's very low. The Federal Reserve's already raising interest rates a few times. I think most economists would agree that it's not the time to be adding fuel on the fire. Well, Uh, okay, so we just mm. had this tax cut, right? Mm. So now remember, you know, this is, uh, if you're running your household, this is coming home saying, I just got to cut and pay. This is the U.S. saying we're going to cut taxes. And what does that mean? It means we're going to bring less money into the government. It doesn't matter. We're going to take a less of it, a good deal less of it, from U.S. corporations in terms of taxes. So that income is no longer coming in. And when I have income, when I take hits to my income in the Farr household, I sit down and visit with Mrs. Farr and say, Mrs. Farr, we need to spend a little less because I'm bringing in a little less. And Mrs. Farr typically Mm. gets that. But the government doesn't do it that way. No, they're doing the opposite. They're They're taking in less and spending more. It's it's unbelievable. And actually, it was... Mrs. Farr would like to understand mm. more about this. She, she, she would like to go ahead and doesn't care what I bring in and could we spend a little more. But, I mean, it creates a huge amount of debt. 
huge debt. And I mean, it's approaching 100% of GDP, the US debt within a decade here. That, that's a big number. Well, we, we're at 100% of GDP, I think, mm. now already. Mm. And I think we're going to go well past 100% of GDP, particularly with this added deficit. So if the US uh, brings in, let's say that the US brings in in tax receipts and everything else somewhere around $4 trillion, for the past year, we spent about $4.6 trillion, and that means that we added $600 billion to the national debt. We just borrowed it. We sold more bonds that someday our grandchildren are going to have to pay back. I mean, this money has to get paid back, you and, know? And then economically, I don't know what your thoughts are, Michael, because we haven't had inflation properly in the U.S. for a long time. But, I mean, does it give you pause for thought that, Maybe this could overheat the economy at the wrong time, or are you more sanguine about that? I'm not. I've been worried about it for so long. But, you know, I think that's the trap. I think complacency here is the trap only because it hasn't happened for so long. We've been suggesting that with, you know, the uh, excess spending, uh, with... um, uh, this amount of cash that's gone mm. a- out into the markets. We were at $10 trillion in debt in 2007. So mm. here we are in 2018, and we have over $20 trillion in debt. And the Federal Reserve created over $4 trillion on its balance sheet, essentially out of thin air. So that's $14 trillion new dollars that we borrowed and shoved into an economy that over that period wasn't didn't start at $20 trillion. It's grown to $20 trillion. So uh, maybe it was at $16 trillion. It's, so uh, we've shoved $14 trillion into a $16 trillion economy, and we've generated 2% GDP growth. I mean, that is a lot, a, a lot of bucks for very little bang, you know? Yeah. So when does all of that cash catch fire has been the question. I mean, for economists around the world, this is not mm. just a far observation, though God knows I have some brilliant insights from time to time. I, tell my wife on a daily basis, but that doesn't happen to be one of them. That one, everybody else has gotten too. So when, when we look and say, all right, when, wh- where is the inflation? Where would it start? It hasn't. But just because it hasn't doesn't mean that it won't. And inflation is one of those things that people always talk about and they'll say, well, if it catches fire, because it is one of those things that if you start it, you can't control it. It's like the controlled fire. You know, I'm going to have a controlled burn on the windiest day of the year. What do you do? Pray. And it puts the Federal Reserve in a very tricky position because it doesn't want the economy to overheat. But at the same time, it doesn't want to kill the economy by raising interest rates too aggressively either. No. So, I mean, the Fed, Jay Powell, he is, I think he's facing probably a much more difficult situation than, than Janet Yellen did in the last couple of years, that's oh, for sure. Oh, absolutely, no question. More so judgment they, involved, gut feel. So they were a little bit more positive in Powell's statement. Mm. Let's go ahead and shift over to Mr. Powell. Well, I, I want to ask you one more thing. You know, the president at the last minute says he wasn't going to sign that bill. Yeah, Let's, the spending bill. The spending uh, bill. Big distraction. I, I think it's a classic Trump distraction tactic. Or, you know, there's a lot of other stuff going on, like Stormy Daniels, like trade war talk. Uh, personnel. Do you know some term- bars had, were offering $2 dark and stormy drinks for the whole 60 minutes, and they had it on TVs, and then they had various words, which I won't even repeat on the forecast, <laughs> that if said, uh, you had to chug. So it, it was very exciting for some and of the ha- How local... did those drinks go down, Mark? They were delicious. They really were. <laughs> I think uh, I, I was a little headachey uh, this morning when I woke up, but I do, you know, you get that dark rum and the ginger beer. It's it's really a pretty, pretty good drink. A little bit of lime. Um, okay, so you think that that was a distraction when okay so but you write for the australian times yeah 
I mean, so tell me, what what's the perspective of, of the Australian business community and political mm. community over something like a tax bill like this? Well, I think the Australian business people and, and probably global business people around the world like some of Trump's policies, the tax cuts, particularly the corporate tax cuts, the deregulation, and... Um, I think they'd like to see that in their countries as well. And actually, Australia might this week cut its corporate tax rate from 30 to 25%, although in a much more fiscally sustainable and slower way. They'll okay, do it now wait a minute. Yeah. Australia might cut its corporate tax rate. And now, is, is there, are they doing that tax cut as in a reaction to the U.S. tax cut? That's the argument in Australia. They've always been trying to do it for a few years, but now that Trump's done it, they say there's a much more important need to stay competitive. Why? Oh, to stay competitive? To attract corporations? To attract corporations, capital investment. Because if they have a higher corporate tax rate in Australia, why not just come to the U.S. where the the, the tax bite is lower? That's the the argument. And I think at at the margin, there's a bit of truth in that as well. Okay, so, but that would imply, John Keogh, that would imply that there could be a global tax cut, global, I mean, because other, yeah. I mean, Australia presumably isn't going to be the only country thinking about yeah. this way. Others are going to want to say, so we've got lower corporate tax rates around the world. So they're going to have, we think two things then. One, corporate balance sheets and corporate income statements should really look even a little more robust because they're not going to have those high tax rates, not only in the U.S. markets, maybe not only in the Australian markets, but around the world. Is that, does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of countries are going to have to consider following suit, especially a country like Canada, which is right next to the U.S. I mean, capital can move very freely between those two borders. So let's go back to that idea about deficits. If I am bringing in less which is what Australia's going to do, which the U.S. is doing, mm. Canada's going to have to do. Uh, and, and we say, okay, for corporations around the world, I'm going to get a benefit. The countries themselves uh, are going to have less income, could have deficits. Is there, uh, will there be enough growth from those corporations to counterbalance mm. the pressure on GDP growth that could be pressure on global GDP growth if everybody follows suit? Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I don't think you can get the one-for-one one revenue replacement. You might stimulate a bit more investment and a few more jobs and maybe slightly higher wages over time. But I think the thing that everyone's concerned about is if I don't do this, growth could be quite a bit low and you lose the mobile capital. The president and his mm. economic team argue for a multiplier effect from mm. this tax cut, that we're going to see growth that multiplies and it is going to be robust and you're not even going to remember the tax cut because we're going to grow mm. our way out of this debt and deficit. Does that make sense? I don't think there's any realistic prospect that the U.S. will grow at 4%. I guess 3%, if everything went right, is, is plausible, though over the long term, that's still a, still a hefty ask. They're not going to make up the entire revenue from the tax cut with higher growth. That's just hocus-pocus economics. Uh, having said that, I mean, in their defense, the U.S. corporate tax rate and the whole system of taxing international income, it was too high. They did need to reform them, so I will give them some credit for that. They probably cut maybe a little bit too deeply. And it would have been better to see some spending offsets or maybe some tax rises in some other areas to be able to pay for it. Okay, so here's Farr's problem with this. You've got an economy that is driven 68% by the consumer. The U.S. Mm. economy is driven 68% by the consumer. You just gave the tax cut to the corporations. If the consumers don't have any more money in their pockets, now maybe some corporations will raise wages Mm. and maybe they'll, we saw some $1,000 bonuses, but they're not going to be sustained, don't appear to be sustained, until you get more money. 
into the engine that's driving the economy, which is the pocketbook of the consumer, I think you're going to have trouble seeing economic growth. And by the way, as you've cut those taxes, and we have put more money in the pockets of the consumer, I mean in the pockets of corporations, corporations are not investing in plant and equipment by and large. They have increased their stock buybacks. So they're benefiting their shareholders. Something like 90% of stocks are owned by 14% of Americans. To broad to, to yeah. benefit the broad base, you have to get more money into those hands. So finally, we're we're gosh, we're out of time again here. So tell me, John, how do you grade Jay Powell's first interview? Positive, negative, A, B, C, or D? Tell me what you think. I'd give him a B plus. He was direct to the point. Uh, made the key points. He didn't waffle on so much like an economist would. And uh, I thought he had himself fairly well in the first press conference, but he's going to find more testing times ahead. Uh, particularly, I think, as this fiscal stimulus hits the economy. Yeah, I thought he was terrific. I really mm. did. My friend Tyler Matheson and I, who I was on CNBC with during that uh, during that uh, interview with Powell and and that report, we were both concerned because he failed the Greenspan test. We felt like we understood what he said, <laughs> yes, which, exactly. which you're not supposed to do with the chairman of the Federal Reserve. John Keogh, thank you so much for joining us again. I can't thank you enough for being on the Farcast. We're wrapping up another segment here. Uh, Harry Jennings, thank you for being our political reporter. Boris, thank you so much. Please remember... Remember that if you think you've heard any recommendation to buy or sell a security here on the Farcast, you haven't. If you're thinking about changing your portfolio, adding, moving, shifting, please don't without checking with your financial advisor, getting some professional expertise and advice. Finally, if we can be helpful to you at Farr, Miller & Washington, it would be our delight and our pleasure. Please give us a call at Farr, Miller & Washington. Once again, out of time. Thank you so much. We'll be back uh, again. We're actually taking next week off here on the Farcast. We'll be back right after that. We have a program lined up that's going to be fabulous. Thank you so much, sincerely, for listening to me and my great guest once again in Washington, D.C. I'm Michael Farr. <laughs>